Welcome to Heroes of Brand Protection Podcast, Episode 22. I'm your host, Daniel Shapiro, Vice President of Brand Relations at Redpoints, the world's fastest growing brand protection solution with a mission to make the internet safer for both brands and consumers. In this podcast, we will share stories and industry insights from some of the leading experts in brand protection and anti-counterfeiting from many industries across the world. We are so happy you could join us today, and please check out all of our episodes on www.redpoints.com forward slash podcast. Today, we are thrilled to be speaking with Sam Williams, head of intellectual property for Siemens in the UK. When Sam was a young girl, she wanted to become a history teacher. Later, she realized she wanted to study physics and ended up pursuing a higher education degree in physics. After receiving her PhD in material science, Sam realized that adding a certificate of intellectual property would be very interesting to her. She's really an overachiever. That's how Sam got her started in the industry, and after working for a number of law firms and some in-house roles, Sam finally landed her dream job at Siemens. Sam, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. We're thrilled to have you as part of our podcast and looking forward to learning a lot about you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So what's your most used emoji uh, when you're either texting or typing? Do you have a a signature emoji that you use? Um, Yes, it's normally a laughing face, um, mainly because I spend my time trying to look on the more positive side of life. So I try to find some fun and laughter in everything. Great. Listen, uh, in our situation today, uh, a laughing face is good for sure, right? <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Yes. And when you think about your career uh, across different experiences you have, is there a story that you tend to share as sort of one of those funny things that happened to you along the way, you know, that uh, is one of those good ones you share over a cocktail or a glass of wine? So I have been lucky enough to have some very interesting experiences in my career. And I think the one that I will never forget is I went to do a series of oppositions in Munich on respirators, so face masks that we are all now used to wearing. And as part of this, we had a clear life-size plastic head that we would take along with us to show how the mask fitted on the face. Um, And on the way back, I didn't check this in. I had it in my hand luggage. And so I came up to security at Munich Airport and I put my hand luggage through and the security guys looked at the screen and looked at it again. And then a couple more security guys came along and, and, and looked again and took me to one side and said, madam could you tell us what's in your bag because they had seen this disembodied head on the x-ray screen so i said well of course of course and i put my hand into the bag and i pulled the head out with a flourish and said it's a head (laughs) at which point they all recoiled backwards ah that that's fine so then they they kind of let me through but it was the look of shock on their faces as this strange English woman was waving a clear plastic head about in security. I don't think that's ever happened to them before or since, and certainly it hasn't happened to me again, but it was very memorable. 
That is a great story. I mean, one of those fun things to see like on a video from like an airport security thing where, you know, it was being recorded and uh, this lady's holding a head. I may well be on YouTube somewhere and I don't know. You could be on YouTube. That is a YouTube <laughs> item. I love that. <laughs> we'll have to search for you. Definitely. Um, so tell us uh, sort of what, what did you want to be when you grew up? How did you end up in this space? So when I was growing up, I had no intention of doing science at all. And I wanted to be a history teacher. I was fascinated with the past and I really liked um, helping people with homework, etc. And I thought, oh, you know, teaching would be a really good thing to do. And then when I came to do my A-levels, I had a sudden moment where I thought, well, maybe history isn't quite me and so rather than suddenly doing I had been going to do English history um in English to English language and history I suddenly chose to do physics chemistry maths and further maths and then ended up doing physics so it was a real spur of the moment decision to change I still don't know why that's awesome and did you end up getting your uh degrees in in physics Yes, so my first degree was physics, and then uh, I moved on to do a PhD, which was more in material science, and that was finding out how did DVDs work, which meant a lot of people would ask me to fix their DVD player, which was not really what (laughs) I was learning about. You became a technician. Uh, Literally, yes. Um, But it was more around the physical processes of how data was recorded uh and that is also how i became a patent attorney actually interesting so i was sponsored and my sponsor used to do patent applications and i would sit in the dark in the basement at midnight taking photographs of dvds for the patent applications and then one day while sat in the dark in the freezing cold, I thought, why am I in the basement doing this? I could be the person writing it up. Why don't I do patents? And that was that. And then my patent career was born. Very nice. So then you went back to school one more time. Um, No. So in the UK and in Europe, we train on the job as patent attorneys. Um, But I was very lucky and able to go and do um, a law degree in Strasbourg partway through my career. Very nice. So I did kind of end up going back to school, but it did take me another 10 years. <laughs> and then how how did you, uh, as you uh, began in physics in the basement with DVDs and then becoming a patent attorney, how did you uh, end up over at Siemens? Um, so I started off working in private practice in a small firm called Phillips & Lee, where I concentrated on work and clients that were all about materials so really what I'd done in my PhD I then moved in private practice to do work on software because I was quite interested in software and more digital things and then I moved into industry and I went to work at Pilkington partly because I had been there as a student so I knew what everything was like Um, spent a lot of time working on glazings for cars um, which means I now bore my husband with facts about car windows whenever we travel anywhere (laughs) I I moved to 3M (laughs) 
where I got to spend four and a half years of my life looking at abrasives, which does not sound thrilling, but is. Um, and I also did, again, software, a lot of work on security uh, documents and things like passports. I then moved to be a director in private practice where I worked with SMEs. So although my career had always been about industry or large corporate clients, I'd never worked with SMEs and I really wanted the chance to do that. Um, and I worked on a project uh, for two years doing that. And then the call of industry was too much to resist. So <laughs> I went back to industry and worked in BP and I saw my job that I have now advertised and I thought, oh, head of IP, that's great. I'll never get it, but I'll try anyway. And then lo and behold, I am now head of IP at Siemens in the UK. Listen, that's a, that's, that's a great story. And uh, one in which I think, you know, is a, is a good story for all those listening who sometimes you surprise yourself and you can actually, <laughs> you can get what you want to get, right? I mean, clearly you're a talented physicist, you know, IP lawyer, and it all worked out perfectly. So maybe for those who are listening uh, to us this morning, maybe share a little bit about the business of Siemens for those who may not be as familiar with it. What does Siemens do? Where are you based? How many countries, you know, broadly is Siemens operating in and so forth? Siemens is a technology company, I think is the best way of putting it. We have three core businesses. So we have a digital industries business, which looks at things like digital twins uh, and supports customers around using digitalization in their industries. We have a smart infrastructure business, which is uh, more about the infrastructure that you need to have in place around digital aspects. So things like smart buildings and grid edge, and together they do quite a lot as well, looking at things like climate change. How can our products and our technologies help people um, facing the challenges that we have currently? We also have a mobility business, uh, which is rail. So people will have traveled on Siemens trains and they will have traveled on uh, railway lines where we have the signaling. And we also have um, a very large share in Siemens Health and Ears, who people will have seen, I guess, when they've been in hospital and seen the MRI scanners and the CT scanners and the various medical equipment. So it's really all about having some kind of technology with a purpose that can really benefit other people. So that's what we really concentrate on. We have uh, people in around 200 countries globally, and we have had our 175th anniversary. So wow. we have been around for quite some time. That's impressive. I was, I've always thought of Siemens. Uh, my wife is a medical doctor. So I've always thought of Siemens in the medical space, as you mentioned, MRIs and so forth. So, yes. Uh, but it's uh, impressive. And maybe uh, if you could um, think about, I don't know if this is possible because it's such a, <clears throat> such a broad technical company, but is there a way to put Siemens in a one sentence? Like Siemens is a, Oh, so when I think about it, for me, it's about having technology with purpose that will transform the everyday for our customers and their customers as well. 
Awesome. That's a great sentence. It's really cool to be part of a company where the technology is so key and is core to everything that we do. It's like being a child in a toy shop. That's fantastic. So when you think of your specific job as head of intellectual property for Siemens, is there a particular challenge that you think is sort of, you know, number one in your book in terms of the kinds of things that you, uh, you know, sort of maybe keep you up at night or, or challenging? So there are two areas, I think, where for me that I see challenges and they are partly because of the way that our business has changed in the last few years, but also the way that the world has changed. And so thinking about things like the increased use of digital platforms and digitalization and also e-commerce, because all of this points towards more software, more use of the cloud, more security issues, more likelihood of counterfeit, et cetera, et cetera. And so for me, the challenge is thinking around, well, given this huge shift, in how people behave and the products that we sell, how do we use our IP and cover our products to make sure that actually we can prevent counterfeits, we can prevent people from copying our technology, we can find out if somebody is squatting on one of our domain names or someone's offering our products, but they're not actually ours. Uh, what's the best way that I can do this? And are the traditional methods that we would normally have really the right way to do that so my particular challenge is really coping with the pace of change yeah i was at a conference once and uh, there was a gentleman from ge and he let off the presentation with a statement that i'd never forget but it, it said the pace of change will never be this slow again right and and which was sort of that anomaly which is it's only going to get faster and faster and you know, more, more difficult, right? Yeah. So uh, it's interesting that you identify that sort of pace of change as well, right? Um, what challenges, uh, besides what you just mentioned, are there any other challenges in the brand protection industry that you see, uh, as you just described, whether it's e-commerce, you know, a domain squatting? So I think the other thing that has changed is there's a lot about servitization. So where traditionally people would sell physical products, now much more is about services and about bundling together products, services, maybe in fact, almost taking over things like data management. Data for me is a big issue as well in terms of how is that protected? And again, it's partly this pace of change, but it's also the fact that technology isn't standing still. And the way that we offer businesses products and services is so diverse now. So you could still have somebody going in person with a physical product to show them that, for example, some kind of motion controller. But more than likely, you have somebody who is on Teams who is talking about providing a bundle of services to manage data and manage climate within a building or to manage data and payment systems around things like EV charging. And that's so different to what we are used to in terms of the entire way that we go about it and the ways that people can try and get around what we're doing. So I think the fact that we've moved so far from physical products is a big one because it's no longer about a trademark on a box. You know, it's about a trademark 
on a screen or in a video call or somewhere on LinkedIn. And even down to if someone has posted on LinkedIn and they've shown something that they've seen in the office, actually, even are they able to do that? So how we look at even our day-to-day business operations is so different. Yeah. And of course, it's, it comes with a different set of risks, all those things you describe, right? The risks mm-hmm. change as well as the in the way in which people do that. Um, and when I think about risk, you know, from a, from a customer uh, or consumer's point of view, you know, what are the risks of ending up with, you know, non-authentic Siemens product or software? What are What are some of the, I suppose, in many of these things, could be life or death in some cases, I suppose, if, if it was not authentic software or authentic product. Yes. And it's really around the quality of the product that we offer, I think, in that there is a certain almost guarantee of quality because of the history that Siemens has in the areas in which it operates. And so if you're a consumer, when you see that trademark, you are going to make certain assumptions about the item that you're getting. And if that hasn't come from us, those those assumptions don't hold true. And for example, if you highlight, if there's been a software update um, in some kind of product where, for example, think about it on a train, and then there's maybe an issue around signaling. Well, then if something goes wrong, and somebody thinks it was us, you don't just have the issue of, well, there was a quality issue with the product, but then you have the liability, you have the consumer perception and our reputation. So from a consumer perspective, you know, every time I see the word Siemens on something, I associate that with a certain history and quality and reliability. And if I didn't get that when I got that trademark, then I think I'd be very disappointed. Right. No, that's 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 a great summary, and 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 I think you're right in terms of the reputation, right? Because perhaps for a 175 year old company, you know, the reputation is as critical, or if not more critical, that history and reputation, and so being associated with something that is not yours that could damage that a uh, long term, you know, valuable reputation is is uh, certainly at risk. Definitely. And uh, when you think about your profession of fellow IP lawyers or patent lawyers, is there something we need to debunk about what 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 the world thinks about UIP lawyers? Oh, so <laughs> <laughs> what, do, what do we think about you people? <laughs> yeah, I guess that part of it is that people probably think we either all sit in offices all on our own and think about very, very high tech things and never communicate with other people, which is not true. Always spend our lives talking to people in R&D and nobody else, which is also not true, because the thing that I'm always trying to push is that everybody is an inventor. Everyone has an invention in them. And so just thinking that I only talk to R&D is not actually true. So I think it's an acceptance that we'll talk to anybody about ip and we don't mind if you're not an engineer because <laughs> we find it fascinating right exactly yes it, it's um even after 21 years there's still every day there's something new and it's just there's no way that i would not do this great sam i don't know if you know michael keenan 
he's the global brand protection director for Beijing, which is a global biotechnology company. We had him in our last episode, and he wanted to ask you a question. The question he wanted to ask you was, what new concerns are there from a brand protection standpoint that might be connected to the pandemic? So I think this comes back to what we were saying earlier about the the method in which people now buy products has changed. So we look at digital platforms, we're looking at increasing e-commerce. And whilst you can still use traditional enforcement mechanisms, I think the biggest challenge is having to look at the fact that there are other ways of dealing with the issue of somebody passing off products that aren't yours. And this is things you know, things like even down to um, checking that people are actually using the terms and conditions of whatever platform they're on, and if they're not reporting them, for example, or whether in fact people should be partnering with these various digital platforms, because then you have more of a say in what those terms and conditions should be, and you can work with them more easily in order to determine whether there are infringement issues. And also really encouraging companies who are selling products through digital and e-commerce platforms, maybe to work together, because again, there's an element of the traditional ways that we look at infringement or traditional ways that we even think about protecting IP don't necessarily apply in that virtual space. And it is really all around starting to be more creative in using other enforcement techniques and mechanisms in order to actually be able to then get to the point where you can use your more traditional cease and desist trademark infringement, patent infringement situations. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. I, I think one of the things that I sort of hear hear you saying in there is sort of the collaboration piece, right? Trying to figure out uh, it, it's bigger and faster than you know one person and the ability to collaborate with others, collaborate with the uh, e-commerce platforms is a better opportunity to solve the problem than to think you could somehow do it on your own, maybe out there. Um, is there anybody who uh, inspired you along your career, someone who really sort of you think about was a, a major inspiration for you? So there is, and it's one of my previous managers, um, and that's nothing about any of my other managers, but um, when I went to BP, I worked with somebody called George Jonas, who is now um, Chief IP Counsel at Residio. And he really did show how an IP attorney could be to me. And the way that he would interact with the business, the way that he could grasp the technology and the strategy was really, it was one of those things where you think, you know, I want to be like that. How do I get to be like that? And it was really him who inspired me with the idea of going into more of a management and leadership role because I hadn't really considered it before. And it was really through talking to him and realizing what about me made me want to be a patent attorney. And then what did I really like about anything that I'd already been doing? And he made me realize really where I wanted to go in my career. So Without him, I wouldn't be where I am now. That's a great story. Listen, that and that goes to show you how how you might be impacting others in your career too. I mean, you, as you've I've come along, so. Well, I would like to be able to. To make an impact, I'm sure you do. 
And Sam, um, for our, our next guest, uh, what would you like to ask her? What question would you like to ask her? Um, I think following on from the question that Michael Keenan asked me, I think I would like to know if someone was standing where they are, but two years ago, but with the knowledge of where we are now, what would they be doing differently with their IP protection if they'd known what was going to happen? That's awesome. Well, Sam, uh, we've got to the end of the interview. Thank you so much for your time. It was great having you. And I think we really all learned a lot. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you. It was very interesting to learn about your journey, Sam, and your insights in brand protection space. And I'd like to highlight a couple things that really stood out for me for our, with our conversation. As a consumer, when you buy either a product or a service that doesn't come from Siemens, there is a really a high risk that the item purchased doesn't have the historical quality that Siemens is known for providing. Number two, the traditional way of looking at infringements or protecting intellectual property doesn't necessarily apply in the virtual space. It's starting to get to a point where we need to be creative in using different enforcement techniques in this space. Well, that's it for us today. If you've liked what you heard, check out our next inspiring story from another hero of brand protection. You can follow us on all of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, as well as Twitter and LinkedIn. Make it a good day.